You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm here with my daughter, Esther. She's number two of four girls that I have. Um, And uh, my friend, Joe, who just uh, pulled off an amazing conference here in London and is going to be incredibly exhausted, so I feel like we should get a meal ministry uh, for Joe this week. Uh, but, but just what I'd say there is uh, some people will impact the world by personality, uh, and some people will change the world through character, and, and Joe is uh, a world changer, yes. and so uh, I know she's visited here a bunch, and I hope you guys continue in that relationship, and then Pastor Pete, thank you for having me. Uh, our, our Western culture doesn't honor pastors as much as we should. I'm in a multicultural church in Portland, Oregon, and um, a lot of people from across Asia, uh, a lot of people from across Central America and South America that are in this church, and it's remarkable how those cultures honor and respect uh, the pastors so much better than, than Western uh, culture does, uh, and it's really taught me a lot. I can't say that to my church, um, love me more, uh, <laughs> but if I could say to you, I think this is, uh, we should call today Hug Pastor Pete Day. Um, and, uh, and maybe everyone can give him a little love, but thank you for having me. And then I would just say to you, uh, there's something beautiful about you coming and standing here and worshiping and declaring your love, your need for God. Uh, we live in a world where we need to, to somehow grab hold of the idea that, that God created the church um, because it's significant and it's relevant uh, and it's something that is so deep that it'll last all the way into heaven. NGOs won't. Uh, not even my marriage will, um, but but the church goes all the way into heaven, uh, and it's not going to be declared relevant to culture or the world because of a good marketing scheme, good branding, uh, or or good theoretical arguments. Um, the proof of the relevance of the church is when you come and stand here every Sunday. By being here, you, you are giving the only real argument. Uh, for the fact that the church matters. Does that make sense? Um, You being here is not just something deeply meaningful for yourself. You being here gives testimony to the world that the church matters and is relevant for today. Um, So just being here, uh, an amazing reminder for me in that. um, I'm a a local church pastor, but I've had the, the blessing to be able to travel a lot and to be able to speak a lot. And there are a good hundred messages that I have PowerPoints for and and have memorized all the outlines. Um, However, uh, coming in this morning, I felt that I needed to go a completely new direction, one that I don't even have in my head right now. Um, (laughs) So we're going to off-road. Do you have that phrase here? We're going to off-road a little bit. Um, and if it gets boring, uh, then you can just pray to God that maybe he would steer me uh, to a, a little bit more uh, engaging content. Um, and I've, I'm going to read a few things from a book I wrote just because uh, at least I know those chunks, um, the words are, are there. Um, and one, one more thing. Uh, when you're traveling in, in your 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 in a, in a different space, eating different food, and dealing with a little bit of jet lag still. Uh, 
you, you either get one slice of a person, so usually it's the super analytical slice with me, uh, or the really bad American humor slice uh, comes out a lot. Um, the slice that's, that's, uh, that's happening today is I think I'm just really feeling the depths of, of my heart um, and, uh, and feeling. I guess just saying that word is a strange word for me. Um, but you're getting the feeling part of me. So um, I don't know when it will come around again, but it's here today. So um, let us pray real quick if we can. Father God, if, if you would so desire, maybe move in a, a mighty way this morning. Uh, even if it's small and imperceptible, uh, a breeze, the wind that comes through, but it's your wind. The one that says that it doesn't have to come with a big show. It just has to come with, with the power to change lives. Not because of anything human, but simply because of the truth of, of the message and the love in your heart for us, your sons and daughters, so we would hold out our hands and turn it all over to you and ask that you would give us whatever you would have for us this morning, we pray. Amen. Um, justice is a big topic. It's, it's a topic I've spent a lot of time on. It's obviously a topic that's being talked a lot about in society, um, and, and we know it when we dream about the great things that can happen and we know it when we see bad things that we'd love to go run and, and address. And so it can become real quickly um, something that gets our adrenaline, uh, that justice fires us up and, and gets our action and gets our adrenaline. I, I want to give you a different side of justice if you turn to Jeremiah. We'll just be there briefly, so if you don't want to turn, that's fine. But Jeremiah chapter 12 And you have to have just a little context here that Habakkuk says something that becomes really a thread throughout Scripture. Paul talks about it in Romans and then again in Galatians and then the writer to the Hebrews says it again, but it's this really poignant phrase, the the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith, which uh, modern translations mistranslate sometimes, the righteous shall live by faith, but if you go back and look at King James, New King James, and Tyndall before that, and, and then the, the original languages, it's the just shall live by faith. And so it's, it's, it's communicating something very interesting, that faith is somehow tied together in this subject of justice. Um, that faith is, is tied to justice. And one of the clearest ways of seeing this is seeing it in the reverse. And so Jeremiah chapter 12, it says this, it says, you are always righteous, Lord. Uh, that word could also be justice. You are always just, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper, and why do all the faithless live at ease? Why does the way of the wicked prosper, why do all the faithless live at ease? In other words, injustice challenges faith, because faith and justice are tied together. We actually know this more than we realize we know this because if we talk about the problem of evil or the problem of suffering, we, we, we're very familiar with it. We've either talked along those lines, talked about it in philosophy classes in school, had friends come to us, but when there is evil or pain in the world, we, we cry out, where are you, God, in this? 
Why are you not doing something? If you're loving God, then why won't you alleviate the suffering of, of those that are, that are experiencing pain that doesn't seem to have any redeeming quality to it? God, look at the world that you made, and, and why, if you're just, why, if you're loving, does this continue? So we're very familiar with the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, and what it does to complicate faith. The people that say, I'm agnostic or I'm, athe- I'm an atheist because I see how the world is and it makes me go, can there really be a God? Faith and justice are deeply connected. Does that make sense? If we go a little bit further in Jeremiah, we get this really interesting thing that God responds to Jeremiah. Now, you've got to remember, Jeremiah has been called to be a leader. He has been singled out for a task. And usually when you call someone to be a leader, it's because they exhibit characteristics beyond others so that they can carry the burden or the weight of that responsibility. Do you hear me? They're called out because they can carry the burden or the weight of that responsibility. And so God is in some sense discipling or coaching Jeremiah as he's being called into this task. And so as God is bringing Jeremiah along, he speaks very directly, very forthrightly, like a coach would. Think of tennis and the tennis coach. The tennis coach doesn't say it soft. There's a relationship that's been built that's very much about truth-telling and abruptness and, and saying it like it is. And so God, a little bit further in Jeremiah chapter 12, says this. I hear him say, it's not in the text, but I hear him saying, Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Isn't that crazy? God's answer to Jeremiah's complaint going, this world doesn't seem to make sense and I don't really understand your work in it. And God steps back and says, you've stopped too soon, Jeremiah. You've stopped too soon to wrestle uh, and to look down. If you cannot race with men on foot, how do you expect to compete with horses? You have to have enough faith in me that you'll let some of those questions go that you'll trust me, that you'll lean into your calling, that you'll go forward even tired and aspire to do all of what I've called you to do and and gifted you uniquely to be able to do, to carry that burden. Faith and justice are tied. Um, It brings up something really fascinating then about this subject of doubt. It's a subject we don't talk often about. I grew up in in and around church contexts where faith meant you go in the corner, you close your eyes, and you, you try and will your belief that God exists. You know, I, I think he exists, I think he exists, I think he exists. And if anyone wants to come and talk to you about science or anything rational, you, you, you want them to just go away. You're interrupting my mantra where I'm enchanting myself into the belief that God exists. That's what faith meant to me. And so doubt... What does doubt mean in that kind of context? Doubt is a chink in the armor that says, what is now going to happen to my belief in God? If I admit that I have a doubt, if I let that in, this whole game of enchanting myself into pretending I believe in a supernatural creative being that has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, died for us, what's going to happen to that? It's, it's the complete wrong narrative of faith. Um, even Satan, it says in James, believes that God exists. That's actually not that big of a deal. <laughs> 
Um, the real question about faith is, the God who exists, the God who created us, are you willing to follow? Are you willing to obey? You see, faith is walking step by step every day. Um, faith is opposed to sight. If I am walking by sight, I could navigate all the way to downtown London and maybe not run into a wall. All the way. I might get cold, but I can see what's coming. I can, I can choose my direction. I can stay safe. But if I close my eyes and ask for a little help, I'm going to get really nervous that I can't even get out of this room without being bumped into a chair or him getting bored and running me into a wall just for a laugh, right? Like, I have to trust at every step. And that's the interesting thing about God. We talk very thinly about God sometimes. Um, Very thinly. We think God is just, uh, everything's a first order, supreme, kind of perfect thing, but God, because of his character, has some things that are secondary qualities. Let me explain one. God's faithfulness oftentimes is secondary, meaning we first have to put our faith in God for God to demonstrate that that he's faithful. We first have to put our trust in God for God to demonstrate that he's trustworthy. I can never experience that God is trustworthy if I don't actually Put the weight on it and see that it can carry me. That it delivers on the promise, so to speak. So God makes these promises, issues these covenants, and then says, come and see if you obey me, if you walk in faithfulness, that I won't act in a way that will reaffirm or affirm for the first time that faith is really how you're supposed to walk. So the just shall live by faith. It means we close our eyes and we seek God and we walk one step at a time and trust. And that gets very messy very quick. And it destroys our, our notion of, of doubt, that we can't really talk about doubt. You see, the, the prior version of doubt um, is that doubt is like on a teeter-totter. Do you guys call it teeter-totter? Um, a seesaw. A seesaw. So if faith is up, that means doubt is down. But if doubt goes up, faith goes down. And so if I've been in a church for 20 years and I lead small groups and people look to me and I have faith, but then something happens in my life and I find myself wrestling with God and and having these doubts, doubts about the meaning of life, doubts about my own capability, doubts about the church, doubts about whether there's hope or not, and the messiness of life has got me gripped, oftentimes we internalize that. Because if I open up and share about that with somebody else and and really am honest with my words, it's going to make me look like I don't have much faith. And I've spent 20 years building up a reputation as a godly person, a righteous person, a person that has faith. I don't want to mess that up. It's like red light, green light. Do you have that game? Children's game? Um, I don't know. I don't even know how, going back to the beginning, you know, I've, I've climbed so far. And, and then if I let doubt be known, somehow I have to start all over again and then prove to people my faith. That's not it at all. It's, it's actually very different that, that faith requires doubt. If there, if there is just sight, no tension, no messiness, no question whatsoever, it's just directly straightforward, it doesn't require faith. That's sight. So for it to be faith, it actually necessitates this this tension, this anxiety in some sense that you're choosing to overlook 
and, and continue to walk forward in faith. So faith needs doubt like fire needs oxygen. Let me read it just to maybe say it a little more poignantly. Throughout the scriptures, God never challenges whether doubt should exist. It's the one point of unity between us and God. The the recognition that we struggle with faith, belief, and trust. I'm sorry. It's the one point of unity between us and God. The recognition that we struggle with faith, belief, and trust. Where we differ from God is what we think should follow doubt. We think the burden rests on God to erase our doubt. And God knows that the burden rests on us to continue to trust and wait on him even in our doubt. Our programmed response to confusion is doubt, while the Psalms teach us to respond to confusion with faith. We think, da- uh, we think doubt demands an answer. God thinks doubt demands faith. We look at doubt and think it needs an urgent resolution. God looks at doubt and thinks we need patience and endurance. It could be said that when we think doubt is the problem between us and God, the reality is that an absence of faith or trust might be the real problem. Doubt's not our issue. It's always going to be there. Um, Our issue is, in the face of doubt, what do we actually do? Um, God to Jeremiah, if you stop and wrestle there and can't move forward in trust, if you can't race with men on foot, how do you expect to run against the horses? Psalm uh, Psalm 42 is an interesting one. All of the Psalms show this paradox, by the way. God, why are you far from me? Why do my enemies um, seem to win all the time? Uh, Why do I feel like this? And then there's this moment in in the Psalms where it goes, yet, yet I will trust in you. Yet, you you know, I will believe in you, my rock and my redeemer. This is an amazing one because uh, Psalm 42, there was all these songs that were written about it because it's very romantic sound, uh, sounding, very sentimental sounding. It begins, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. So this picture of an, of an animal that desires or thirsts for water. And we take that and we go sing songs because we too yearn for an experience of God. But this psalm is very different than that. If you look, it, it, it says... My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I, I remember that as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. But, but why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? My soul, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember from the land of the Jordan, the heights of the Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Um, Just picture just getting rolled by the waves at the shore and you, you see the emotion and, and the, the wrestling and the struggle. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? In the last 24 hours, I've had a young woman come to me because she's um, being approached uh, inappropriately by, by a man and asking me to carry that burden with her. Uh, just came from Lebanon this week 
where <clears throat> refugee families, um, 1.5 million, potentially up to 2 million people in this situation of vulnerability. Um, and vulnerability creates even higher and worse um, and more horrific violence um, against gender, uh, against the idea that your, your kids can get an education. And so as a parent, uh, Syria used to, be, used to have the highest middle class in the, in, in the Middle East. And so now you have people that were middle class living in a tent. Uh, there is no refugee camp in Lebanon, government-sponsored refugee camp. Those refugees are on private land with their makeshift tents and have to pay money to a landlord. It's, it's not what we picture from the movies. That's Turkey or Jordan with these big camps. So think of the abuse when you're not legally allowed to get a job. There's two sectors, agriculture, construction. You're not legally allowed to get a job. You have to pay rent for this tent that is on somebody's land, agricultural land, and that they're having you work that land basically to trade, or having you do odd jobs, and when you go to collect on the money, they say, I'm not going to give it to you, but you promised, well, go tell the police, because you're not actually allowed to have that job anyways. Your kids, uh, and even the NGOs, can't do official schools over there, so you have to go to the Lebanese school, but you have to be admitted to the Lebanese school, so only some of the Syrian kids being admitted, others not being admitted to school, and there you are as a parent as a father, as a mother, as a, an 18-year-old older sister who's the head of the household now and watching your siblings and going, how are they ever going to thrive, right? You, you wrestle with these questions and you bring them back. I, I, over the course of two days, felt so inadequate to live up to expectations of, of friends or, or people um, so difficult with a stomach that doesn't work properly and physically, my energy. Going from the heights of, of feeling excited and gratified um, to the depths of, of humility and, and just all over the map. And, and the whole while having this, this toxic masculinity in the back of my mind that says somehow I have to be strong beyond the messiness of life. Right? Right? that I can feel it and experience it, but what I have to project, because I'm a leader, I'm a, I'm a person of faith, I can't let anybody see the chink in the armor, that it's maybe messy, that I, I do struggle. I've got a daughter. And I'm raised in a culture that, that would have men never cry. Um, never be vulnerable. And is that the right way? Am I teaching my daughter about God and faith and justice? If it's really about image and my strength? So I'll finish with the story of Naaman. Naaman in 2 Kings 5. Uh, Naaman's a Syrian, so... It's kind of ironic. He's a Syrian that has leprosy. He's a general in the army. He has leprosy, and a slave girl from uh, Samaria says, I know how you can be healed. You, you need to go to the, uh, to the prophet in Samaria. And so he's sent 
to the king of Israel with a large sum of money and says, I'm supposed to come and be healed here. And the king of, of Israel at this time rips his clothes, and, and it's, it's amazing. He's like, why are you, you just put this pressure on me to deliver something. You know what I'm saying? It's like someone coming to you and, and going, you know, I believe in God if, <laughs> or, uh, hey, you go to church all the time, but um, how about this one? And you're like, ooh, I wish, wish you hadn't asked. I wish you hadn't asked because I really don't know what to do. And now it creates this awkward situation. So the king is distraught, but he's, um, he's contacted by Elisha and says, send, the, send this man to me. So Naaman and his, his entourage go to Elisha. And Elisha says this, uh, you go wash in the Jordan River and you'll be clean. Wash seven times in the Jordan River. And the text says that Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, honor me, basically, stand and call on the name of, of his God, wave his hand over the spot of leprosy, and cure me. By the way, you get the sense that this leprosy is just beginning, so you still have pride in this military, uh, military general that's thinking, somehow I can get my life back, Right? And so he's still thinking of honor and, and this spot of leprosy. And, and isn't he going to wave his hand over? And then are not the Abana and the Parfur, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? There's his pride. Couldn't I have gone and washed in them and be cleansed? I have better rivers, rivers that aren't silted, rivers that don't have brown water, rivers that aren't messy, rivers that belong to our country, which is more powerful, rivers that are closer to me, rivers that would be more befitting of who I am. If you're going to play games with me, shouldn't you have sent me to that river to wash seven times? And his men say to him, listen, if this prophet says that, then, then do it. He goes, he washes seven times, and he's healed. And when I was reflecting on the story a number of years ago, I thought the strange logic of washing in, in messy water, um, washing in dirty water, that God doesn't take us straight to what we think to resolve stuff. God says, go into the messiness, go into the dirty water by faith. Because the resolution to whatever is around you or the injustice that you're trying to sort out in your own soul, the answer to that comes as you bow, you get rid of the pride, you get rid of that sense of honor you have, and you obediently follow. It's called the descending way. It's called following Jesus. It's called taking up your cross. It's called dying that we might live. It's a paradox, is it not? And so in this kingdom, there's a logic to washing in dirty water, and you go into the dirty water, and the psalmist gives us the words that we say, God, this is how I feel, this is what's going on, this is what it looks like, smells like, but in this moment, I can cry out to you and say, yet, I will trust in you, my rock and my, my redeemer, that there's a downward path that leads to resurrection. And so... Paul in 2 Corinthians says these words, and maybe it wraps up some of what I've been trying to say. It says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Anyone feel like you're wasting away? I keep thinking that next week or next month I'm going to look more like I did three years ago. If I just got more sleep, if I... 
could just drink more water and stay hydrated. But the, the reality is um, I'm wasting away. Not only physically, but I think, I think even in our energy, our vitality, our, our struggle to hope sometimes, inwardly we are wasting away. Um, so out, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we're fixing our eyes. That's faith, right? We're fixing our eyes, our inward eyes, in a different kind of way. Not on what is seen, that would be what we normally think of, but on what is unseen, that's perceiving through the eyes of faith, taking the words of God, taking the promises of God, taking the love of God, and somehow projecting out that I can perceive it enough to lay hold of it and say that the goodness of this anchors my endurance now in the midst of all of this pain that I just don't feel like I can carry. My ability to perceive that anchors now my endurance so that I can continue to walk by faith. I start my prayer going, God, what is going on? God says to me, if you cannot run with men on foot, how are you going to run with horses? And I center myself again and go, you are God. You do speak truth. You will walk with me. God, if you can just give me a picture of you and where you're at, I will trust that. I know you are sovereign. I know that you have a plan for the world. I know that you have a heart of reconciliation. I will lay hold of that. Let my feet be fast. Let my feet be strong. I will run as I can. I will take the burden you've put on me and carry it. God, I want to follow Jesus. I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. I want to know a different kind of life. And so the beauty of communion, the band's going to come up, and I think we're going to the table here. But I want to just recast it a little bit. This was the Passover meal. This was the moment when the Pharaoh was about to to crack down even harder on the slaves, the Israelite slaves in Egypt. He'd already abused them terribly and the tension the political tension is getting so great that there's fear amongst everybody and then God through Moses asks him to do this really weird thing to kill a prized animal and put blood on the door and and somehow this was a sign that there's a logic there's a logic to doing something paradoxical if we're doing it in faith and, and obedience and God delivers and says now I want you to remember that So you drink of the cup and you eat the bread and you remember that lamb that came out of the craziest time that that I have a different kind of logic that's predicated on faith that if you trust me, I'll prove myself trustworthy. Then Jesus comes in Jerusalem in the darkest days. His disciples are worried for their lives. Jesus will lose his life the next day. We're talking about the fear of assassination, the fear of torture. And in the garden, Jesus even so racked with the emotion and then left alone by his friends you know when we start to fear we we scatter don't we when we need each other the most sometimes we're all thinking only about ourselves um 
And in the middle of that, Jesus gives his life and he says, now when you take this cup, you look back to that dark time, that messy time, and you remember that the pain is understood, that the messiness is okay, that the logic is there, that I am the Redeemer, that you can pray the Psalms, you can sing those songs, if you will, with the full voice of both doubt and faith. And so as we do that today, whether you're an agnostic and atheist, whether you're a struggling believer, whether life is just messy, this is God's tangible, um, visual, all the senses, the taste and the smell and the sight, symbol that he gives you to say, my grace is sufficient for you. When you are weak, you are strong. My grace is sufficient for you. So I don't know your tradition uh, at this church. I don't know how you're going to do it. But I just want to pray right now. And if you need the faith to lay hold of, of, of Jesus in terms of belief, that Jesus exists and loves you, died for you, I want you to stand. If you need to lay hold of Jesus by faith because your life is, is so heavy, you don't know that you can continue then maybe you could stand with me. If you just need to be renewed with the passion that this world is not about what we see, but it's about what we can perceive and somehow be filled again by that energy, that endurance, then maybe you can stand with me when I pray. When you just want to stand and say, I want to be with the people of God because we all need this together corporately, then you can stand and I'll pray. But stand or remain seated. I'm going to pray for us now. Father... In your patience, we experience kindness. In your long suffering, it, it grows and spurs on our endurance. In the smile from a brother and sister, we experience your love and your kindness as well. And when we come and practice our faith together, we become stronger. We become the body of Christ. We begin to realize you've called us to be the incarnation in this world. And we realize in that moment that it's grace that makes us just. It's not our level of energy or activism, how loud our voice is, how hard we work, but it's grace that ultimately is sufficient for us. It's grace that makes us just. We thank you for that, for the gift of Jesus who died for us, that we might live. In Jesus' name.